You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing atheists in America. In what ways are atheists stigmatized, and how do some atheists misunderstand religious people? How can atheists partner with religious communities to work for social justice? And what should atheists be doing now to respond to rising Christian nationalism in the United States? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. This is our 30th episode. I'm thrilled by the great response to this podcast and all the topics we've been able to cover so far. Thank you for joining us. I'm especially excited for today's conversation and to be chatting with Chris Stedman about Atheist in America, which we've timed to coincide with the 10th anniversary of his excellent and much-discussed book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. His most recent book, which I also recommend, is called IRL, Finding Our Real Selves in a Digital World. You can read a great conversation with Chris and University of Pennsylvania Religious Studies professor Donovan Schaefer about both of Chris's books in the upcoming November issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Chris. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing well. Thank you. Of course. So this is our first episode that looks in depth at atheists, although the topic has come up briefly in a few episodes on American Jews, because in many Jewish circles, being an atheist does not nullify one's Jewish identity. Uh, But from having read your books, I know that you don't come from a Jewish background, which is also true, of course, for most Americans. So identifying as an atheist can carry some baggage and a different set of assumptions. And one of the things I really like about your book, Faithiest, is that you write about assumptions religious people have about atheists, and additionally, assumptions some atheists have about religious people. So I'd like to start there. What might you say are some common misunderstandings you've witnessed about atheists? And then what are some misunderstandings you've witnessed about religious people among atheists? I think it's helpful to start with this religious warmth survey that the Pew Research Center does. Um, This is whenever I'm talking to people about, you know, how atheists are perceived in the United States. I just find this survey so helpful. Hmm. So they do this survey where they um, use a sort of feeling thermometer to measure people's warmth toward different religious groups. So they ask people, how warmly do you feel about this group? Hmm. And they've done this a number of times and sort of consistently found that atheists and Muslims are statistically tied for the most negatively viewed religious or ethical category. Hmm. And so atheists are definitely, (laughs) um, we face an uphill battle when it comes to public perception. And, you know, for years now, even before Faithius came out, as I've traveled around and done speaking engagements and college visits, um, I will often do like in a more of a sort of conversational setting, or I do this in the classroom too now as a a professor at Augsburg University, I'll do a sort of activity where I ask people to share the words that they associate with things like atheist or agnostic. And some people do have positive associations with those words, but by and large, most people, when sort of pressed to ask what words they have heard um, associated with these things, you know, they tend to list things like angry, 
um, self-important, um, hmm. mm-hmm. holier than thou, ironically. <laughs> um, <laughs> so there's a ton of research that's super interesting. When I was writing, I was writing this column for Religion News Service um, on atheism in the United States hmm. back in 2014. And one of the things I wrote about back then was the oft-made comparison between the atheist movement and the LGBTQ rights movement. Hmm. And I think there is something um, to be learned from looking at the LGBTQ rights movement when thinking about how to address anti-atheist stigma. For, you know, for example, I think it was Pew again that found that when it came to people who changed their mind around same-sex marriage, which is the sort of biggest shift in public opinion we've seen in the shortest amount of time, the number one reason given was having a personal relationship with someone who is gay or lesbian. Mm -hmm. And this really is sort of the core of what I argued for in Faithiest, which is that atheists should work to establish relationships with religious people to humanize our differences. Mm. And I think that there is something to learn there. But When it comes to the sort of anti-atheist sentiment as opposed to sort of anti-LGBTQ bias, um, the roots of those things are different. Anti-atheist sentiment is really rooted in distrust, which I'll get back to in a second. Um, Mm. But anti-LGBTQ sentiment is rooted in uh, disgust, which, you know, disgust is really like a dehumanizing, visceral, kind of moralized emotion. And Mm -hmm. that's why we see you know, violent hate crimes committed against LGBTQ people and so on. Whereas distrust is is a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a really interesting study, I think it was University of British Columbia, um, where they found um, that atheists are highly distrusted, which lines up with, you know, sort of what we see in the Pew Religious Warmth Survey, because trust is really important when it comes to maintaining positive feelings about a group. What was really interesting about that study is that um, even other atheists were less likely to view fellow atheists with trust. Huh. Um, and so, so I think some of it has to certainly has to do with the ways that religious groups have talked about atheists over the years and have linked the idea that one can only be moral if one is religious. But there seems to be something a little bit deeper going on there. This idea maybe that we have as human beings, perhaps as evolutionary in some ways, that someone is more likely to behave in ways that are moral or good if they think someone is watching what they're doing. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, whereas anti-LGBTQ, you know, attitudes um, are often rooted in this idea that homosexuality is not natural, um, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is, again, a very different sort of thing. And so the reason I (laughs) share all of this is, A, I am both queer and an atheist, and I have experienced these things in, you know, really different ways. I I don't fear for my safety as an atheist in the United States. Now, certainly Mm -hmm. there's a big conversation we could have about atheism in other parts of the world and threats to people's livelihoods. Um, But I certainly have feared for my safety as a queer person in the United States um, and continue to. And so, you know, all of that is to say, certainly negative perceptions of atheists are really widespread. But this idea that atheists face some of the same challenges that a group like the LGBTQ community does, I think is misplaced. And I think if there is something to be learned, it's this idea that it really is through relationships um, that we have an opportunity to challenge negative sort of biases that people might have about atheists. And atheists constitute a very small 
percentage of the American population, while the number of people who say that they're not religious has absolutely skyrocketed mm-hmm. over the last couple of decades, mm-hmm. the number of people who say that they're atheist has only grown a small amount. Um, and so, you know, for example, every group has members that um, don't represent the sort of majority sure. of their group, like the Westboro Baptist Church obviously does not represent the majority of Christians. And if you see the Westboro Baptist Church on the te- television, um, you you know are able to sort of balance it out with, oh, hey, my neighbor who's Christian isn't like that. So you sure. have more data points, whereas atheists, you know, really don't. And so someone like Richard Dawkins, for example, um, you know, has a sort of outsized influence on how people see atheists, mm-hmm. even though he really actually doesn't represent the majority of atheists. There was a study out of the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, I want to say in 2015, and they surveyed members of atheist organizations. So you'd think these would be sort of the most diehard folks who Mm -hmm. maybe were most drawn in by the message of someone like Richard Dawkins. Um, You know, a lot of these organizations really are closely aligned with, you know, or have historically been. Um, But the majority of respondents said they did not consider themselves anti-theists. Only a small percentage um, of respondents said they did. And yet that has, you know, sort of been one of the sort of most widely understood things about atheism. So, you know, a big part of why I wrote Faithiest, honestly, was I felt that my experiences and my understanding of who I was as an atheist was not being represented in a lot of the narratives around atheism. Hmm. I felt like I didn't see, yeah, I didn't see my story reflected in the stories of people like Richard Dawkins and a lot of other atheists I knew felt similarly. And, you know, when I was coming out as queer, I really needed the narratives of other queer people who I could relate to in some way to help me imagine myself building a life for myself as a queer person you know, all I saw at that point in my life in terms of representation was like Will and Grace. And they were living a life that was very different from mine as a queer kid growing up in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I desperately needed other narratives. And I, you know, I think if there's only a single story about who atheists are, then it leaves a lot of people feeling as if their atheism is not legitimate or valid when in fact their atheism perhaps is actually more uh, widely understood mm-hmm. or shared than someone like Richard Dawkins is. So you've spent quite a bit of time with organized atheists, by which I mean atheists who've come together for community and political action. And one of the things that stands out to me when I think about your work is that you've compared some of those experiences of meeting some of these organized atheists to what it felt like when you were an earlier participant in evangelical Christian circles. And I'm wondering if you could explain how so. How did some atheists gatherings remind you of evangelicals? What did that look like and how did that play out? I did not grow up religious. I actually grew up, I would say, irreligious. You mm-hmm. know, it's we weren't religious, but we also just didn't really talk about it. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I didn't understand religion much growing up. And then when I was around 11, I was invited to this after school youth group um, based out of a non-denominational Christian church. And At first, it was kind of a revelation, if I can use that word, because, you know, as human beings, we have these core needs. We need meaning. We need to feel as if our lives, you know, make sense and have some sort of purpose to them, whether it's a purpose we we build or a purpose that we inherit or are given or some combination. 
And we also need to feel that our lives uh, or that we belong. Um, mm-hmm. We need meaning. We need belonging. We need to feel like we have a place we fit in this world. And this community really met both of those needs for me at a time when, you know, some of the places I'd previously found meaning and belonging, um, like in my family, were going through huge changes. My parents were divorcing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But the church that I joined was very theologically conservative. And more more than that, it had a very strong sort of in-group, out-group you know, uh, sentiment that permeated really almost every facet of the community. And so, you know, there was this sense that we had the truth, everybody else was wrong. Anyone who didn't share our view of the world was to be viewed with suspicion, um, was considered dangerous, Mm -hmm. um, or was worthy of kind of ridicule in some ways. And I think that that, you know, contributed to a lot of the um, harmful experiences that I had in that ultimately ended up having in that church. Um, Obviously, one of the sort of outside groups that they demonized um, and ridiculed was LGBTQ people. And I was also realizing that I was queer at the time. And so I look back on that and think, you know, if I had just joined a different kind of church, if I had joined one of the um, LGBT affirming Lutheran churches that I ultimately ended up in after my mom learned of the struggle I was having between my sexuality and my faith and took me to speak with a, an LGBT affirming minister, you know, or if I had ended up in a Unitarian Universalist congregation sure. or something like that, a community that didn't have such closed boundaries and mm-hmm. that didn't view outsiders with suspicion or um, as, as um, people to be, you know, mocked or ridiculed. I think I would have had a profoundly different experience, or I know I would have. And I ended up later in life coming to see the connection between the you know deeply harmful experiences I had as someone who came to see myself as one of the outsiders that was being ridiculed in that space, seeing the connection between that and the kind of you know great personal struggles that I had. And That's a big part of why I have come to believe so strongly in the importance of intentional efforts to bring people together across lines of difference for the sake of trying to humanize those differences, Mm -hmm. not for the sake of pretending as if there's kind of universal consensus uh, or that all groups believe the same things or that we're, you know, we're not so different, you and I. The problem isn't difference, it's how we relate to difference. Mm -hmm. And that congregation had a deeply uh, troubled relationship with difference. And I encountered a, a similar kind of relationship to difference as I got involved in organizing atheist spaces. Now, I don't want to say it was a universal because I also found atheist and particularly secular humanist communities that had a very different relationship with with difference with religion. But I was actually quite astounded by just how troubled that relationship to difference was in some atheist spaces. I think in the conversation that I had with Donovan Schaefer that you referenced, um, you know, we talked about my experience going to the first American Atheists Convention and this scene uh, that happened there where a group um, came out and performed as uh, Muslim women wearing burqas. And it felt like, I mean, it was absolutely racist. It was a caricature. The thing that disturbed me almost more than the performance itself, which was called Back in Their Burqas Again, mm-hmm. um, I, I understand the intention was to, um, you know, sort of mock people who enforce uh, required, you know, religious garments, but it ended up feeling like it was actually just punching down at people who are subjected to that. But the thing that shocked me almost more than the performance was looking around and feeling 
and and seeing everybody sort of uh, laughing uproariously hmm. and applauding vigorously and feeling like, wow, I am the only person here seeing something different than what everyone else is seeing. Now, I don't know if that was the case. There may very well have been other people there who also saw what I saw, but did make me feel that there was a lot of work to be done in atheist spaces around these things. And so that's honestly a big part of my time in organized atheism was spent trying to draw attention to things like rampant Islamophobia. Mm -hmm. uh, and even, you know, one of the last real pieces that I wrote on atheism was, I want to say back in 2018, I wrote a piece for Vice on what I and, and many others have noticed, which is this kind of pipeline from organized atheism to alt-right and white supremacist spaces, I have felt a responsibility to, you know, draw attention to those things in the same way that I hope my interfaith allies in, you know, Christian communities, for example, see themselves as having a responsibility to address the homophobia that they see in those spaces, the racism yeah. they see in those spaces, yeah. and so on. Um, so yeah, I think honestly, more than anything, the association that I felt between the evangelical Christian spaces I inhabited as an adolescent and the atheist spaces I encountered was both a, not only a relationship to difference, but also relatedly a sense of certainty. And um, I think that is one of the biggest misconceptions about atheism is, yeah, as I was sort of mentioning earlier, this sense that atheists think that they know um, better than everybody else. And, you know, I... I actually think that having a healthy relationship with uncertainty is not only critically important for any human being, mm -hmm. but for me is a core feature of what I understand my worldview to be as an atheist and a humanist. And so not feeling that in atheist spaces made it feel like in some ways I, I felt that I had a harder time connecting with those individuals than I did with religious believers who shared a sort of, um, similar understanding about the importance of living with uncertainty as I did. Yeah. Thank you. So you've given us uh, some pieces of it, but for those who haven't yet read your book, Faithiest, could you just tell us briefly how you would describe its main argument? And since we're celebrating its 10th anniversary, uh, would you say that that's an argument you see as uh, even more relevant today or less so? How do you feel like it's when you reflect on the past 10 years, how do you feel like it's age when you think about uh, the culture and politics of where we are now? Well, I mean, well, I'll start with the first piece, which is the main argument. I mean, we've been talking about some of it, but if I had to sort of say it in a nutshell, I would say it functions in my mind on two levels. The first is that it is an argument for the importance of interfaith dialogue and for the involvement of atheists, agnostics, and other non-religious people in those conversations. And there are pieces of the book, particularly, you know, the last couple chapters that build out that argument. But I would say beyond that, and, and perhaps above that, it is, you know, fundamentally a story of what it is to, you know, what it, what it is to be an atheist in the United States today. Now it's just one mm -hmm. story, obviously. And it's, you know, my story is, limited by the um, particularities of my experience and the identities that I inhabit. So it's my story, you know, as a, a queer, white, cisgender atheist who, you know, came out of a, a Christian background. Um, but when I was doing my master's in religion, my thesis really was focused on the role of stories in how we make sense of the world around us and make sense of our lives and how stories can both 
liberate us by helping us imagine futures for ourselves that we hadn't previously been able to, and also restrict us how these kind of master narratives that exist in our culture can limit what we can see for ourselves. And I felt pretty strongly that the master narratives about what it meant to be an atheist were extremely limited. And I didn't see myself in those stories. And again, many other atheists who I met and knew did not see themselves reflected in those stories as well. And again, you know, Faithiest is only one person's story. And I saw myself after Faithiest came out as having a real responsibility to try and help elevate um, and support other atheists' uh, stories. And I used my RNS column to do that a, a lot of the time. And, you know, my hope was that Faithiest would just be sort of one story that would help open up more space for other stories. Um, I guess looking back on it and, and whether or not it feels sort of relevant, I would say, you know, that is probably one of the things that has felt most meaningful to me about Faithiest um, is that I have heard from so many people who felt that it was a tool for them. They were able to see themselves reflected in that story in some way. It helped them feel like they had an ability to tell their own story as a result. Um, and that, I think, more than anything else. I mean, yes, I had an argument that I wanted to put forward, but that was my biggest hope for the book, was mm. that it would be something that would have a practical impact on the lives of people who read it in terms of how they related to difference and um, the people around them who didn't share their worldview and in terms of how they felt about their own experience and their own story. And um, the fact that the book, you know, continues to be used in that way feels incredibly special to me. I have a complex relationship with Faithiest, both because it had a complicated reception when it came out. There were a lot of people who really harshly disagreed with some of the arguments in the book um, or the sort of core arguments of the book. Um, and, you know, 10 years have gone by. I am in many ways, obviously, a different person than I was 10 years ago. And so it's it can be uncomfortable sometimes for me to look back at who I was 10 years yeah. ago. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, I have a complicated relationship with the book. Um, and yet, uh, when I feel those feelings arise, um, I find it helpful to remember that it, yeah, it's, you know, once you write a book, it's out in the world and it becomes something Mm, separate mm -hmm. from you. Mm -hmm. And Atheist has functioned as this, yeah, tool for people. And if it's made them feel as if there was more space for them to be able to articulate a vision of who they are as an atheist, then, you know, that's that's really the biggest thing I hoped for from the book. And and I'm happy about that. And so and, and yeah, I think the arguments are still relevant today. I mean, I definitely think that it is a product of its time. If I were to write that book today, I would definitely write it differently, both because I've learned so much, including, you know, a lot of people who had some criticisms to offer from the book that were made in good faith um, that I learned a great deal from. But also, you know, the climate um, today is very different. Uh, you, you mentioned, um, you know, in your introduction, how, you know, what is our responsibility or how should we respond to the rising Christian nationalism? And the world that we are living in is different than the world it was in 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of it is just that I'm more aware of things that I wasn't aware of at the time. But, you know, there are definitely ways I would make different arguments or, uh, you know, maybe some of those arguments in Faithiest I wouldn't make today. But, I do think that the spirit of 
you know, taking that moment when you encounter difference to ask yourself, what exactly are my goals here? I've had over the years, many people, I've encountered many people as a result of this book and also just unrelated, who very strongly disagree with who I am, with what I think about the world, with the identities that I hold. And sometimes there's really nothing to be gained from trying to engage with that person. And Mm -hmm. I'm able to assess that. Mm. But other times there is actually an opportunity to find some understanding and try to kind of unearth what it is about me or the identities I hold that they're taking issue with and whether or not there's actually an openness to learning more. And I'm I've continued to find that there is an opening more often than I think there would be. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so I I still think that it's worth at least taking that moment to be curious about why someone thinks the way they do before just sort of writing them off and dismissing them simply because they hold a different identity or they have some uncertainties or some misconceptions about who you are. Uh, So yeah, I'd say that that still holds for me. You've mentioned that some of the criticisms and even hostility that you've faced when suggesting that atheists reach out and work with religious communities and religious people came from other atheists. Could you tell us what were or what are some of their concerns and objections about collaborating with religious people? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, at the time, honestly, I struggled to understand some of the objections. It felt as if sometimes it was petty. These initiatives are often called interfaith. We're not a faith, so we Mm. shouldn't be there. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of looking at like, well, what's actually happening in these spaces? Is it worthwhile for us to participate? Perhaps, you know, we can help expand the language that's used. You know, I mean, the history of, of interfaith dialogue is one of a gradually expanding circle, you know, Many early interfaith dialogues were, um, you know, inter-Christian, then inter-Abrahamic, and so on. You know, they continued to expand from there. And, of course, the language used in those spaces expanded as well. Um, But some of the criticisms had to do with the idea that it is, you know, so I think for some people in organized atheism, there was a priority to kind of push back on anti-atheist stigma um, and, you know, try to help people understand who atheists actually are and what we actually think. And I think for those people, um, participating in interfaith dialogue made a lot more sense or was easier. It was easier to sort of come around to. Um, There were others, though, who had different priorities, um, including, you know, the elimination of religion or the removal of religion from the public square and I think for those individuals, it, that was more where the issue lied. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has been very interesting over the last 10 years because I felt when I first started um, advocating for atheist inclusion and interfaith dialogue, I kind of felt as if I was a bit on a limb. <laughs> there were uh, certainly others, and I was not the first to make that argument. I was not the first atheist to ever be involved in interfaith uh, work. But I felt as if there were there weren't many people, particularly in sort of organized atheism, who shared that perspective. But over the last ten years, that has changed really significantly. So you know, a lot of atheist organizations now send representatives to interfaith events, hmm. um, particularly when the in the Obama era, when the White House was doing a lot of interfaith initiatives. Um, a lot of these atheist and secular organizations began sending representatives. 
Um, and even some of the people who were some of the most vocally uh, critical of some of the ideas I had or what I had to say uh, have kind of come around uh, and changed their perspective. Hmm. And and I think, honestly, a good amount of that has to do with some of the struggles within the atheist community. The organized atheist community has really been struggling over the last decade with, um, you know, again, this sort of uh, alt-right pipeline that I talked about with um, this kind of, uh, you know, anti-social justice warrior, quote unquote, um, mindset. Richard Dawkins um, has, you know, increasingly tweeted things that have been regarded as transphobic and even his... Um, I believe the American Humanist Association actually rescinded the Humanist of the Year award that they had given him in the past as a hmm. result of those tweets. Hmm. Um, and there have been really contentious discussions around sexism. Again, Dawkins has been at the center of a, a number of those discussions. One of the sort of impacts of that has been that some of the people who at one point felt as if religion was sort of the problem that needed to be dealt with, because in their minds, religion was the source of homophobia, was the source of sexism, and so on came to see that actually atheism isn't some inoculation against mm-hmm. those and saw in fact you know that there are religious people who are our allies in the fight against homophobia and sexism and that um yeah some of those people are our allies in ways that other fellow atheists are not and so i think that has also been part of what has shifted the perspective of some people who held that mindset that was really one of the kind of core arguments of atheists was to say you know, it is often like, so there are, there are a couple of different kinds of interfaith work. There's interfaith work that is simply about humanizing difference. And then there's also interfaith alliance building where, you know, you can partner with people of different, you know, faith or, or atheist um, backgrounds who share common goals. For example, I have a friend who is an atheist community organizer, or he's a community organizer and an atheist mm-hmm. <laughs> around uh, issues concerning immigration. And so he's often working side by side with, um, you know, uh, members of the Catholic Church. But he's also really passionate about reproductive justice. And so in his free time, he's pretty involved in that. And sometimes when he's involved in those things, he's like on the opposite side of the aisle as from, uh, you know, of some of the Catholic folks that he was working with around immigration. He has told me that he finds it much easier to talk to those people about their differences because they've worked together on common goals. Because, you know, then he can no longer be dismissed as some, uh, you know, godless heathen who doesn't share any of their values. Mm-hmm. He's seen as someone who does share a number of their values. And and that, you know, sort of complicates the narrative. There's been an emerging recognition in atheist spaces of the importance of organizing across lines of difference. So you've mentioned how atheism doesn't inoculate people against things like racism or Islamophobia, and you've mentioned Richard Dawkins as as, as a vocal example of some of these things. And you mention in your book that some of these more vocal atheists who get more press attention... Uh, that it appears that they may dislike all religion, but then they seem to disparage Islam more than Buddhism, for example, and actively contribute to Islamophobia. How do you explain that particular focus or fixation with Islam? Well, you know, someone like Sam Harris would say, and obviously I can't speak for him, I don't want to misattribute things that he said, but, you know, I think he has said things like there is something fundamentally different about Islam that makes it particularly troubling. And 
I think Dawkins has said similar things. And they'll point to aspects of Islamic beliefs or practices. But, you know, in my eyes, it's pretty clear that their view of Islam is deeply shaped by, you know, cultural master narratives, you know, around Muslims and negative uh, perceptions that people have of Muslims and Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I I wrote, and this, this I think was before Faithius, it was a bit tongue in cheek, um, but I wrote a piece, um, you know, sort of publicly calling for Sam Harris after he had written something that uh, felt incredibly Islamophobic to me. I, I wrote a piece called publicly sort of inviting him to join me at a, a mosque with friends. Hmm. Um, and he did respond to that piece actually. And, uh, you know, offered a sort of backhanded compliment in it that, uh, writing was good, but, (laughs) but basically said that I was, you know, extremely misled and mistaken. Um, and even he quoted a sort of Twitter user who said, you know, I should go to a Muslim majority country wearing a shirt saying I'm a gay atheist and see how that goes. Mm. Um, and you know, so I, the reason I bring that up is I, I have no doubt that Sam Harris has met Muslims before. I have, you know, I wasn't under any illusions that it was simply a matter of him, you know, being not exposed at all. But I also think that, and this is one of the sort of core challenges I've faced in organized atheist spaces, is I think, you know, we are all deeply shaped by the sort of master narratives that are the air we breathe, culturally speaking. You know, we swim in them. They are invisible to us. We we have very little understanding of how much they shape our view of the world. And you have to be really actively um, self-critical and you have to interrogate your own assumptions and biases in order to begin to sort of recognize those things. And I was and, and continue to be... Um, to consider it sort of ironic, but also very disappointing that a community so fixated on skepticism that sort of valorizes it and puts it on such a pedestal is so deeply unskeptical uh, of itself is, you know, feels so unwilling to turn a skeptical eye inward and say, in what ways might I have assumptions that are, that are based on things that are, you know, not rational. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, again, it's a, you know, a community that really valorizes rationality. Um, and yet, you know, we like to think as human beings that we reason our way to the things that we believe, but of course, so much of what we believe is shaped by our experiences. And again, by these sort of narratives that we inherit. And I just think that it's a case, um, of, you know, people like Dawkins and Harris, not being self-skeptical enough, uh, and not being willing to ask themselves, in what ways are my views on Islam shaped by, um, you know, things that have nothing to do with, uh, you know, what Islam as a, as a living, breathing, embodied tradition, um, as something that is, you know, lived by so many people around the world, but rather something that I view as um, this kind of, you know, static, inherently harmful thing. So then for our last question, in this time of visible rising Christian nationalism in the United States, what might you say atheists should be doing who want to curb the influence of conservative Christianity in American life? When I think about like what is one of the things about Faithius that ten years later I, you know, I, I feel proud of or I stand by or whatever, it is this idea that, you know, 
no one community can tackle the problems that we face on its own. They're too large, you know, whether it's climate change, um, mm -hmm. whether it's um, issues, you know, of racism or sexism. Um, and not only do we, as an atheist community, lack the numbers, but also we are limited by our own sort of ability or reach. I often think about if I am passionate about challenging homophobia um, in Christian spaces, which I am, the idea that I could do that on my own is sort of foolish uh, for a number of reasons. But one of them is that there are some people in those spaces who are just never going to hear it from me. They have already written me off before I've even opened my mouth because of what I believe, because of how I look, um, because of who I am. I'm just never going to be able to reach those people. But I have friends, allies in Christian spaces who have taken the time to learn from me, to ask questions about what would be meaningful in, in terms of support and how they can challenge their own complicity in homophobia. And, you know, those people, because they are in group, because they have buy-in, are perhaps able to reach people that I will just never reach. And when it comes to Christian nationalism, it is a huge issue, is critically important, and it is something that we desperately need Christians to take a leading role on addressing. Mm -hmm. And um, I, you know, I think that atheists have a role to play. I think every community is, you know, is needed uh, in terms of the response to this. But I think that Christians have a particularly important role to play. And I think Christians will respond to rising Christian nationalism better if they are in relationship with members of the atheist mm -hmm. community and others who are also impacted by it. Mm -hmm. So I would say that one important way to respond to it, and certainly not the only way, um, is to invest in alliances with Christian groups who also recognize this issue and are actively trying to respond to it. That's great. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for all of the important work you're doing and for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Chris Stedman. You can find his conversation with Donovan Schaefer about Chris's two books and much more in The Revealer's upcoming November issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of both Faithiest and IRL at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next next month, we'll be discussing the corporate space race and its connections to religion. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org.